I would invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of St. John, and today we will be reading from the 21st chapter as we look at one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, where he sort of recalibrates a fallen disciple, someone who had classically blown it. And how the Lord Jesus, as the great shepherd, shepherds his heart, indicating that because Christ is alive, he has ministry with us, and we experience his presence in many different ways. And not only are there grand hopes because he is risen, but there are also personal hopes because he is risen. Hear now the word of the Lord. We will start in verse 1, and we will read um, probably through verse 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. Tiberias is another term for Galilee, so it's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, or the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many that the net was not torn, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray today that you will open up our eyes to behold wondrous and wonderful truth from your word. And we pray that as we spend this time together, you would do that secret work in our heart, that the Spirit would take your word and bring life to the death of our hearts, that you would encourage us and rebuke us and instruct us and draw us to yourself and cause us to give all of our heart and affections to you. And we pray you would do this to honor your son and to lift him up. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Peter met the Lord several times. He was with the rest of the disciples, once without Thomas and once with him, when Jesus appeared to them. And there have been many other account, uh, encounters. Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But John 21 tells us a remarkable conversation between Peter and Christ. We sort of get an inside look to a private conversation that the Apostle Peter has with the Lord Jesus on the beach of the Sea of Galilee while they're enjoying, as it were, a fish fry. And so seven of the disciples, and we saw them named in verse 2, they were fishing throughout the night on the Sea of Galilee, but caught nothing. And while they were still on the water, uh, Jesus appeared to them on the shore. We saw that from the reading. Luke chapter 5 recounts another episode of the disciples fishing that is both similar to and different from this one. In both cases, the disciples were in a boat fishing. In both cases, they had worked all night and they had caught nothing. In both cases, Jesus told them to throw out their nets back into the water one more time. And I imagine Peter and the other guys who were professional fishermen sort of looked at Jesus and said, we know what we're doing. We, we fished this lake our whole lives. We've been at it all night, and every fisherman knows you don't cast out your net at this particular time of day and come away with anything. Well, in both cases, Jesus told them to throw their nets back into the water one more time, and each time the result was an enormous, miraculous catch of fish. But in Luke chapter 5, Peter responded by saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter encountered the holy, and he trembled. He was terrified. Who is this guy? 
Who is this guy who can accomplish such miracles? This time, he does the very opposite. Peter jumps into the water. He struggles to the shore, trying to get as close to Jesus as possibly could and as fast as he possibly could. The claims of Jesus Christ, if they are heard for what they are, never evoke a moderate sort of ho-hum response. Jesus claimed to be the Lord God of the universe who had come to earth to give himself for us so that we could live for him. That is a call for total allegiance. Jesus will settle for nothing less. You will either have to run away screaming from him in anger and fear or run toward him with joy and love and fall down at his feet and say to him, I am yours. Jesus is that kind of person. He's not like any other. He's unique. And so, Peter had done both. Because of the instruction that he received from the risen Jesus, Peter now knows enough of the gospel of grace to realize that he has nothing to fear from Jesus' divine presence. But there's a great deal of unfinished business between Peter and his Savior. And so Jesus confronts Peter. After a meal with his disciples, Jesus took Peter on the beach for a walk. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what's going on here? Three times he asked him this penetrating question this mode of exposure kind of question. To understand what Jesus is doing, we must understand the magnitude of Peter's failure. Peter had loudly insisted that while all others might abandon Jesus, they might fold like a cheap suit, they might wimp out when the pressure came, he never would, even if it meant prison and death. Yet, after Jesus was arrested and the other disciples fled, Peter was publicly asked three specific times if he was one of Jesus' disciples. He had three opportunities to identify himself with the Lord, and yet he categorically denied him every time. Do you understand what's going on? I don't know the man. Jesus, I don't know who he is. And so Peter, in his moment where he had boasted, as it were, that he would stand when all others fled, cowers before a little servant girl standing beside a charcoal fire. No wonder on the beach that day there was a fire there. Because that fire and Jesus had to remind Peter of these events. This was huge. The third time he denied Jesus, Peter calls down curses. Peter was in a panic. He wanted to prove that he was not Christ's disciple, lest he be arrested as well. And the best way to prove the onlookers that he was no follower of Jesus was to call down a curse upon Jesus. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Although we hear people do it every day. 
In that shame and honor culture, loyalty was everything, and no real disciple would ever do such a thing to this teacher. Peter did it to save himself and his face. But as the rooster crowed, the terrible truth must have dawned on him. He was no true disciple of the Lord Christ. Think of someone to whom you owe everything. And imagine abandoning him and her or her to die in order to save your own skin. How could anyone forgive himself for something like that? Was there any way back for Peter? The answer is yes. And Jesus shows it to him and he shows it to us because there's nobody sitting in this room who hasn't done the same thing to Jesus. We all have frequently. To begin, Jesus made Peter painfully retrace his steps. He brought Peter to a fire, and Peter had denied Christ three times around a fire. Also, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Three times. The same number of times Peter denied him. It will be obvious to anyone who's read the Gospels and seen Jesus' character that it was no effort to humiliate Peter. Jesus wanted Peter to see himself and to understand himself. And that became clear when Peter asked, or Jesus asked Peter, do you still say you love me more than these? Jesus is going back not just to Peter's behavior, but to the underlying flaw in Peter's heart that led him to the failures. Jesus is not twisting the knife, so to speak, but rather he is using a knife like a surgeon to get down to what is causing Peter's problem because it's a problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Peter's problem was what uh, Yale theologian Mirzlav Volf called a false identity. Listen to Wolf. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Wolf recounts the biblical story of Cain and Abel. And he asks, why did Cain kill his younger brother? His answer is, is that Cain's identity was constructed in relation to his brother Abel. He was great in relation to Abel. Cain got a sense of worth from being superior to his brother. However, when Abel began to surpass him, Cain had to deny that reality because his self-esteem was fully dependent on the uncertainty that he was better than Abel. Cain either had to readjust radically his identity or he had to get rid of Abel. The murder, argues Wolf, did not stem from some irrepressible violent urge Rather, it was the result of the cold logic of a perverted self in order to maintain its own false identity. The facts of Abel's character and life threatened Cain's image of himself. And therefore, his heart reason, Abel cannot continue to be. Like Cain, Peter's identity was based on the assumption of his superiority to the rest of the disciples. Peter told Jesus that he was the most passionate. He was the most faithful of all. He was not basing his identity on Jesus' great love for him, but rather on his great love for Jesus. This meant that while Jesus was Peter's teacher, 
Peter was really being his own savior. Any identity based on the superior performance over others will produce at least two results, and those results are fragility and hostility. We live in an era and a time and an age in which identity is now everything. We have something called identity politics. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once said that the greatest sin a person can commit is to construct an identity apart from Jesus Christ. Your identity is either in him and his love or grace, or it's in you and who you are and what you can do. And any person who bases their identity on themselves is always threatened. They're always threatened, and they're always fragile, and they're always hostile. First, there will be a deep insecurity and inability to really look at yourself and see who you are. Peter, despite Jesus' direct warning to him about his coming failure, had no sense that this danger was real. Why not? Because if you base your very worth on being brave and having bravado, and if you look into your heart and see cowardice, you have to screen it out. You have to deny it, or you won't have a self left. And that is true of any identity not rooted in Jesus' unmerited love, whether a traditional one based on family approval or a Western one based on individual achievement. Any such identity is fragile and radically apprehensive and leads to denial and a lack of self-awareness. The second result is always hostility. Hostility toward those who are different than you, those who are other than you. If you get your identity from being the most passionate follower of Jesus, that's why Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Who are the these? It's not the fish. <laughs> it's the other disciples. You see, Peter, Jesus is doing heart surgery on Peter. He's exposing him. He's opening him up inside that which he is denying, that which he is suppressing, that which he will not let himself see, because if he does, he will literally fall apart. He's got nowhere else to go. And that's where some of you are. You are working very hard to build an identity apart from Jesus. And you know that if you, if you admit what is really true about your own self, you have nowhere to go. Building an identity is building your own personal righteous record before God. That which makes you stand apart. That which makes you better than. That which makes you other than. And we all are prone to do it because of our fallen, diseased, spiritually dead hearts. And so Peter is in a world of hurt here. He's in, a, he's in a mess. And so, if you get your identity from being the most passionate follower of Jesus, then you have to be angry or even violent towards someone who opposes your Lord. When Jesus was arrested, Peter was the only disciple that got violent. Do you remember that? He took a sword and chopped off Malchus' ear. 
I mean, I, c I can get that. There was Peter claiming to be the greatest and most faithful follower of Christ, doing the very opposite of what Christ was doing. Jesus was dying for his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them. But because Peter, like Cain, based his identity on his performance, on being more enlightened and better than these infidels, he had to attack the people Jesus was seeking to save. When a false identity is endangered, the result is always hostility. That is why the great evangelist George Whitfield said, before a person becomes a Christian, the greatest idol of the heart that has to go is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is building your own identity, the essence and reality of who you are, apart from the grace and merit and love of Jesus Christ for you. Christ is full of grace and truth. And yet Peter had to have his heart exposed because of all of that. The stories of Cain and Peter hit comfortably, uncomfortably as it were, close to home for us today. We live in a country that's coming to terms with issues like race and gender and um, other issues uh, while the people debate all over the uh, map on it, Christians of all people should know how deeply rooted these problems are in every man. And so something is happening in our culture. It's called othering. We make someone the other, which in turn makes us superior. It's a grasp for identity on being more and better and supreme. And so, remember the, the Pharisee who prayed in the temple. He prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here is a man quite literally othering. He's not using, uh, he's using not the category of race, but of morality and politics. Tax collectors were Roman collabor collaborators and traders in occupied country. He creates a positive identity as noble, good, and true by contrasting himself and showing contempt for others. As many contemporary thinkers have pointed out, when you create an identity by despising other groups, it makes you dependent in many ways on them. Ironically, the other becomes part of who you are. You need for them to stay in their place to fit your stereotypes of them. And if someone threatens your one-dimensional negative view of them, it shakes your foundations. This is what brought Cain to kill Abel. This is why Peter responded violently as well. Their false identity was shaken, and rather than change it and give it another foundation, they lashed out at the people who were endangering it. What an amazing insight the Word of God has on our hearts and how we operate. Now let's look at Jesus tenderly restoring this disciple who he has exposed almost as a fraud in his heart. Peter had built his self-worth on being more faithful to Jesus than all the rest of his disciples. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these, Peter responds simply, Lord, I just love you. He is beginning to reject his old identity. Then Jesus asks about his love three times, one for each of Peter's denials. 
How does he respond? Let's notice what Peter does not do. He doesn't make any excuses in the presence of Jesus. There's no defensiveness. There's no blame shifting. No buck passing. He does not say, well, yes, I failed to love you, but you have to understand that, nor does he point out to any great deeds on his part to prove how much he does love Jesus. He does not say, yes, I denied you, that was terrible, but please, Jesus, remember all the other ways I served you. That would have been a return to the old false identity. But he doesn't grovel either. He doesn't talk about how unworthy he is. He doesn't beat himself up in an effort to atone for his sins. He simply says, Lord, I love you. That is to say, I know I denied you three times, but I still want a love relationship with you. No excuses. I know I failed. That's what Peter's saying. That's repentance, folks. That's real, live, genuine, flesh and blood repentance Peter's showing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 it's called godly sorrow and true repentance rather than worldly sorrow the former heals restores and changes us permanently the latter that is worldly sorrow while often accompanied by intense emotion is a very passing thing worldly sorrow is a form of self pity it is grieving uh, in which grieving people are upset about the painful effects of sin uh, for their lives and about the shame before others, especially about the damage to their self-image and their reputation, which is still based on being good, virtuous people in worldly sorry, sorrow. You are sorry for the consequences of your sin, for your sake. In true repentance, you are sorry for the sin itself for how it is wronged and grieved your Creator and your Redeemer. In self-centered sorrow, you never come to hate the sin itself. So when the consequences recede, the sin always comes roaring back, more powerful than ever. True repentance is fueled by grief for hurting the heart of one we love. And that intensified love of Christ makes the sin appear hateful and so it begins to lose its power over us. So Peter repents. And Jesus' response is nothing less than shocking. Every time Peter responds to Jesus in loving, humble repentance, Jesus in turn says to him, Feed, take care of my sheep, his people. Peter is being called not to a probationary status, but rather, he's being called to leadership in the face of his greatest failure, humiliation, and embarrassment. Jesus calls him to leadership. What does that say about leadership in his kingdom? And so, how could such failures and weaknesses be a path to greatness and leadership? It would be impossible within the framework of Peter's old identity. It also makes little sense in this world where leaders must be competent, confident, successful. 
In the world, your confidence and inner peace grow in direct proportion to your achievements. The better you do, the better you are, the more love-worthy a person you feel yourself to be. But Jesus is inviting Peter into a completely different kind of identity, one that can say, when I am weak, I am strong. Wow. You know, it's okay to be weak in the presence of Jesus. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's not an identity based on achievement, but on free grace. How could Jesus offer Peter such affirmation? Why doesn't he demand that Peter work off his debt in some way? Peter may have been called may have called curses down on Jesus to save himself, but Jesus actually bore and took the curses that Peter, you and I deserve in order to save us. Every time I hear someone say Jesus Christ in that cursed way, I remember that when Jesus went to the cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, which says if you violate or break the law, you die. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us himself. That's why he's crucified outside the city, out on the hill of the skull, out on Golgotha. Jesus himself becomes a curse on the cross. That's why he can meet failures like Peter and like me and like you and restore us and how we can become useful in his kingdom even when we know we're weak and we're not strong. Peter was so interested in his bravado early on that he was a real man. He was, uh, he was, he was ready to take on the world for Jesus. But what Peter needed to learn is what we all need to learn. Peter may have called down curses on Jesus to save himself, but Jesus actually bore those curses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A Christian identity is based ultimately on the realization of the magnitude, the hugeness, the bigness of God's unchanging love for us. We know this dynamic, that the more we admire someone, the more their admiration for us satisfies us and fulfills us. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all reward. So the knowledge of God's perfect love for us and delight in us, in Jesus, can and will eventually transform us like nothing else. So many of us think we're like Peter in the boat the first time. He sees Jesus do the miracle. Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I can't be in your presence. I can't come to you because I know deep down inside, though no one else can see it, I'm not worthy. I know deep down inside I can't live up. I know deep down inside I will disappoint you. I know myself. And yet the Bible tells us over and over again we're looking at ourselves and not looking at him. And all he has for his people is a perfect love that welcomes us, broken though we are, dirty though we are, unworthy though we are. That's what grace is. This picture of Jesus recalibrating the heart of Peter is a huge, glorious picture of grace, which is the only way God saves people. He does not save you because you're good at it, or you're successful, or you measure up, or you live up, or you fulfill expectations, or you keep your image tight 
and uh, neat. Christ is a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. And the church is a hospital for sinners, not a mausoleum for saints. And so Christ is telling us through this story that to be something in His kingdom is not for you to bring your credentials before Him and say, you can really use me because I'm really great and I can really accomplish great things for you. No, it's your weakness that He uses. It's not your strength. I've told you before, the biggest moves in my life that God has ever made that I'm aware of is when I failed, not when I succeeded. Failure is the back door often to real success. Jesus is saying something like this to Peter. Your identity was based so much on your bravery and your wisdom and your goodness that my love for you seemed nothing more than wages you yourself earned and ought to be paid. But now you've seen your sin, you've turned to me, now your failure plunged you into my grace and forgiveness, and this is what will make you a leader. For who can speak into people's lives better than someone who finally knows their own heart? Who can lead better than someone who is humbled by the grace of God and yet at the same time is affirmed by my free and gracious love? The default mode of the human heart is to believe that it is strength that connects us to God. But the gospel, the best good news you will ever hear in all of your life, says that in weakness, it is weakness that connects you to God. Only to the degree that you see you are weak, then you are strong. Now, did this moment with Jesus alone at the Sea of Galilee, counseling Peter, fix him all together? No. You keep reading, what does Peter do? Peter wants to know what's going to happen to John, his number one rival. And so right after this, Peter starts questioning Jesus about what's going to happen to John. Peter's still struggling, but at least he's on the way. So are you and so am I. The hardest thing you will ever do in your life is believe in and live by the grace of God in Christ for you. Because everything in us militates against us. Everything in us wants it to be, God, you owe me. I have put you in debt to me, and you owe me good things because I've been good. But the gospel is, no. You owe me nothing but punishment. You owe me nothing but to abandon me forever. And yet in Christ, you welcome me as a son and a daughter. That is the gospel. And until we believe that, will never feel comfortable nor encouraged in the presence of Jesus. We miss the whole point. We accomplish so many splendid sins. We, we spend so much time, wasting so much time, not getting and understanding who this Jesus is. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Peter had a much more intimate relationship with Jesus once he understood than he ever had when he was doing well, when he understood his weakness. You think about this a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story that it's in the Bible, that it's true. And the truth of it is what gets to us. 
The truth of it is we can now see in your light our own hearts. Lord, we do pray that we would grow in our understanding of the best good news we would ever hear. And Lord, help us to see that it is not weakness that is off-putting. It is believing that we don't really need you that is off-putting. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who feel and know our weakness and yet know that you delight in us, love us, and draw us to yourself in spite of it. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.